let's continue. And I'm going to ask Faye if she'll come and do the Bible reading for us. And after that, uh, Pete will come and preach. Thank you. Good morning, church. The reading is out of First Thessalonians 3, from 1 to 13. First Thessalonians 3, from 1 to 13. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it's best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that he would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I seemed to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you, and our efforts might have been useless. But Timothy, has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us, just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we, we really love since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. This is the word of God. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be back with you. If you have your Bibles, if you perhaps turn to that part of Scripture, I'm going to be looking at various uh, uh, passages in this book this morning. But before we do, let's just bow in a moment and pray. Father God, we do thank you and acknowledge that you are God of, from the ancient of days. God who has no beginning and no end. A God who is unchanging the same yesterday, today and forever. And so Lord, with all the saints through all the ages, we do just give you honour and glory 
and praise. We do pray, Lord, that by your Spirit, because of Jesus, you would draw near to us today, that you would bless both the preaching of the Word and the hearing. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen. Amen. Some of you will know that I teach at the Bible Institute of uh, South Africa, and we have a we really have two chapel services during our uh, academic schedule and the faculty preach at one and we typically invite a local pastor to preach at the other one. And uh, this past week we had one of our rather recent graduates coming to preach uh, at the college and um, I think he graduated about five years ago and um, the German church in Cape Town City called him to plant an English-speaking church in Cape Town City. So I asked him, how's it going? So he says, the big problem, he says, is kind of, you know, disinterest. You know, he says, I have to go out and, and find the people, you know. Um, a lot of complacency and disinterest in, um, in Christianity. Uh, as you read this letter to the church at Thessalonica, Thessalonica, you will realize that the church plant received a very different response. During Paul's second missionary journey, together with Silas, he planted this church and it had what might be called a rather stormy beginning. In Acts chapter 17, Luke records uh, the events surrounding the church plant, and I'm quoting there from, from verses 1 to 5. Paul and Silas came to Thessalonica, and when they were, uh, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, Paul went in and reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So although Paul's ministry was first to the was was a special calling to go to the Gentiles. The gospel is first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles, and you find this is Paul's standard modus operandi as he travelled around uh, the Roman Empire. So Paul went in; he reasoned from the Scriptures, saying. This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, attacked the house of Jason, who was a believer, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. <laughs> Talk about a baptism of fire. How would you, how would you counsel um, these fledgling believers facing this kind of intense, fiery persecution? Well, in this letter, 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes to really counsel them. And what is so interesting about this letter is that it is a surprisingly positive and upbeat letter. Typically, when Paul writes, there's a pretty standard format to his letter. He identifies himself as the writer, and he identifies those to whom he's writing, and then there's a greeting, and then there's a thanksgiving. There's one letter in the New Testament where Paul is so upset that he completely dispenses with the thanksgiving, uh, the letter to the Galatians. But typically, that thanksgiving runs for one or two or three verses. But one commentator points out, and I think rightly so, that in this particular letter, Paul's thanksgiving extends through three chapters. 
Isn't that interesting? Writing to young fledgling believers who are facing very intense, violent persecution. Well, let's look at how Paul goes about counseling and encouraging these young believers. Significantly, when Paul begins, he doesn't begin with their struggles. Not the focus. That's kind of the, the back story. But that's not where Paul begins. He begins rather with what I call a backwards look at their conversion experience. In chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Paul says this, We know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. So that as Paul began to preach the gospel and hold out that word of life, it had a very visible impact. People were persuaded. Paul, Luke tells us that some of them were persuaded. They were persuaded by the gospel. They believed the gospel. So in effect, what Paul is doing here is saying to them and reminding them, although they are rejected and violently opposed by their fellow countrymen, Paul reminds them in these verses that they are loved by God and chosen by Him. What a privilege. We heard about uh, these young lovebirds this morning being interviewed. <laughs> and it's wonderful. It's a wonderful. It's a wonderful stage of life when someone says, you know, I love you. I choose you. I choose you. You're the one I want to spend the rest of my life. It's special. It's special to know that you loved and specifically chosen by someone. Well, Paul reminds them, you're loved by God. The God who is the, from the Ancient of Days, the great Creator God, who sustains the universe by His Word, chosen by Him. Moreover, Paul reminds them that there, or informs them that their response to the Gospel had been an inspiration to all the believers in the region. If you know anything about Paul's second ministry, second missionary journey, you will know that at various points, the kind of reception he received was not as fiery. For example, a little later on, Paul ends up in Berea, and we are told that the Bereans were of more noble birth than the Thessalonians. Why? Because they listened to what Paul said, and they went away and checked whether what Paul said was um, in the scriptures. So no doubt word had got out that this church had been birthed in a, in a fiery furnace. But Paul points out that that testimony of their response, their faith had gone out to Achaia and Macedonia. I'm reading from verses 6 and 7. You received the word in much affliction. There we go, in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. What an encouragement to them. 
Word has spread far and wide, he tells them, about your response to this gospel. Rejected by men, but far more significant. They are loved and accepted by God and His people. We're living today what is called the cancel culture. Uh, if you're on social media, you know what I'm talking about, where you get cancelled, where people cancel you, where they um, shut you down, where they um, despise you, where they reject your voice. Um, that's the culture we live in. That's, in a sense, what was happening in Thessalonica. And Paul reminds them, again, of their high standing and their high position before God. Secondly, Paul gives them what I call an upwards look. Is it not true that when persecution comes, particularly intense persecution, the kind of persecution these saints were experiencing, the temptation is to do what? It's to lower the flag. To compromise. To cancel yourself. To pull down the flag. To blend in with the surrounding culture so that the persecution will cease. Paul says, don't do it. Paul gives what I call this upwards look to remind them in the context of God's calling for them. In chapter 4, Paul points out that believers are called to walk in a way that pleases God. God's will for believers is their sanctification, which is just a fancy technical word for holiness. That's God's will for them, even in the midst of their trials and persecution. What to me is so interesting as you read through this letter, you will see that Paul spends um, a large portion of this letter devoted to this particular aspect of spelling out the calling that God has given them. In chapter 4, Paul spells out some of the specifics. They are to abstain from sexual immorality, for that is the way of the world. They are to love one another more and more. They are called to walk properly before outsiders, even those who are persecuting them, working to supply their own needs. In chapter 4, verse 8, Paul reminds them that God gives believers His Holy Spirit to effect obedience. What God commands His people to do, God by His Holy Spirit enables them to do. What is the primary work of God's Holy Spirit? Well, it is to open our eyes spiritually so that we are born again, but it is to sanctify us. How do we know whether we have God's Spirit? It's not the gifts of the Spirit, the spectacular. For Jesus tells us elsewhere that on the day of judgment, many will come to Him and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we perform all these mighty miracles in Your name? And He will say, depart from me, you evildoers. I never knew You. The primary mark, my friends, 
brothers and sisters of the Holy Spirit is that you are holy, not perfect, but seeking and striving to walk in obedience to God. In chapter 5, verses 15 through 22, Paul points out there that their difficult circumstances are no excuse for moral compromise. I'm quoting from verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Revenge. We love watching revenge movies, don't we? <laughs> Where the baddie gets what they deserve. I'm sure you're so sanctified, you've never had any thoughts of revenge. Huh? Anyone? <laughs> Am I the only one? <laughs> the temptation must have been enormous. He says, don't do it, don't do it. But always seek to, to do good to one another and to everyone. Elsewhere in another letter, Paul says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. And it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We must overcome evil with good, thereby pouring burning coals, heaping burning coals on people's heads. Verse 16, Rejoice always. Last week I preached on James chapter 1. Consider it a pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Rejoice always. Really, Paul? <laughs> you know how things are happening, how things are going on here. Rejoice always, he says. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. It's a high standard. Paul calls them to be different, salt and light, different, responding differently to the way of the world. Verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. Wow. But I want you to look with me at the next verse, verse 23 of chapter 5. May God himself, the God of peace, the God of peace. And clearly in that particular context, he's not talking about this circumstantial peace. He's talking about that, that peace that he gives us in the midst even of turmoil. That peace with him, being right with him. May he, may he sanctify you through and through. Again, you see, Paul reminds them that God has not abandoned them. Yes, God has given them this very high calling. But he's saying, God, God is the one who's going to sanctify you. One theologian puts it this way, that we are to strive for holiness as though it depended completely upon us. And as though it complete, on the other hand, as though it, complete, it depended completely on God. God Himself, may God Himself sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. The one who calls you is faithful and He will do it. 
God's reputation depends on that. God's good name depends on that. Paul speaks from experience. If you know anything about Paul's life, Paul lives from one difficult trial to another. That was his life. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Thirdly, Paul gives them what I call a forwards look. What is very striking about this letter, and maybe not surprising, is that throughout the letter, indeed, it's at the end of each of the chapters, Paul focuses on our Lord's return. Very prominent. At the end of the age, divine deliverance and justice is at hand for these believers. Paul doesn't say if you have just enough faith those trials will lift. But rather Paul points them beyond this present evil age to a better day, a glorious day when Jesus Christ will return. Chapter 1 verse 10, Paul reminds them that they are waiting for His Son from heaven, Jesus, who will deliver them from the wrath to come. One writer puts it this way, Believers are destined for affliction, but not wrath. You're a Christian. You will experience affliction in this life, but not God's wrath. God will not punish you. Interestingly, the sermon that we heard from this visiting preacher was a Roman on Hebrews chapter 12, talking about God's discipline. When we go through trials and hardships, it is God's discipline, disciplining His children because He loves them. Is concerned for their sanctification. In chapter 4, Paul talks about this glorious return. We said in chapter 3, verse 13, he says, The Lord will return in glory with all his saints. I love that little word, all. It's such a small little word. It's so easy to just miss that little word. But my friends, we're, we're in God's hands. We've been bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus. And elsewhere Jesus says, Lord, none, thank you for those you've given me. None can be plucked from my hand. None. If you're a child of God, your destiny, my friends, is glory when Jesus returns. With all the saints, not a single one will be left behind. Not one will be lost. The dead in Christ will be raised to life. And together with those who are still living, we will be with Him forever. The God who is the Ancient of Days. Not so unbelievers. They will be judged when the Lord returns in glory. A return that Paul tells us is unexpected and sudden. I'm quoting from chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. The day of the Lord, that's a day of judgment. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. We're very familiar with that imagery, aren't we, in this country? 
a thief in the night, unexpected. While people are saying there is peace and security, in other words, you see this, they, 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 they reject this notion of God's judgment and God's wrath. Oh, you don't really need to worry. Peace and security. All this talk about Jesus' return in glory and God knows it's, it's nonsense. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. Sorry, Alice. There's Alice. <laughs> and there will be no escape, Alice. <laughs> we pray that it will be relatively painless. But I mean, it's, you know, Paul, as far as we know, was never married, but he, he'd seen this. He'd obviously witnessed this happening. And Alice knows more or less when it's going to happen. But suddenly, it'll come upon her. Suddenly. And it's the same here. We know it's coming, but we're not quite sure when. Like a thief in the night. Sudden destruction. And there will be no escape. While people are saying peace and security, Paul says there will be no escape. The good news is that their peace of persecution will not last forever. And all unrepented persecutors will be punished. Because of Paul, of course, Paul was a persecutor. But all unrepentant persecutors will be punished. As I said, as the writer to Hebrews reminds us, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Finally, Paul reminds, with a sideways look, Paul reminds these believers that they are not alone in their trials. Sometimes if you're going through difficulties and trials, you might think you're the only one. Paul informs them that he and his companions, and I'm quoting from chapter 2, had suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi. Paul reminds them of that. In chapter 3, verse 4, Paul recalls, and I'm quoting, When we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. You see, Paul had read the lie of the land. He knew what was coming. He anticipated the jealousy and rejection from the Jews. So we kept telling you that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass. He says, you are not alone. When Paul speaks of we, he includes not only himself and his ministry companions, but also his many Christian readers. But still, although they knew they were destined for this kind of persecution, they still needed constant encouragement to honor God in their circumstances. That is why Paul writes this letter to them and why he tells us that he had earlier sent Timothy to them, and I'm quoting from chapter 3, 
to establish and exhort them in their faith so that no one would be moved by these afflictions. Paul fled, went south, sent back Timothy to encourage them that they might stand firm in the midst of their afflictions. In so doing, Paul recognized that the kind of encouragement they needed was best done face to face. Writing a letter was second best. You and I know that communicating through social media is not quite the same, is it? It's face to face. And so he says in chapter 3, verse 10, And we pray most earnestly, earnestly night and day. Pray most earnestly night and day. For what? That we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. It's Apostle Paul. Paul didn't want them to think that as a pastor he had abandoned them. So Paul says, I'm praying earnestly night and day that I might be reunited with you in person to supply what is lacking in your faith. But in the interim, these believers were called to encourage one another. Twice Paul tells his readers in chapter 4, encourage one another with these things. Encourage one another with these things. And in the context, he's speaking about the second coming. When last, my friends, did you even think about the second coming of Christ? Our problem is we live in a very different environment. The temptation is to compromise and complacency. As I mentioned last week, we just want to tick that box, you know, I want to get on with my life and enjoy it and go to heaven when I die. Students will tell you, when I end my classes, I always say, God willing, I will see you next week, if the Lord tarries. If my eschatology is right, Jesus could come at any moment. And what a day of rejoicing that will be. No more load shedding. <laughs> Just glorious light. <laughs> Even without the sun. Again in chapter 5, verse 14, And we urge you, brothers and sisters, he's writing to the saints, urging you, Warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. That's their calling. I think it's true to say that when we go through trials and hardships, and I think one of the reasons why Paul encourages them to encourage one another there is because, or urges them to encourage one another, because... My friends, as God carries us through times of trials and tribulations, we become uniquely qualified to encourage others. Paul talks about that in his second letter to the Corinthian church, that the comfort that he had experienced overflowed in his life. The comfort God had given him overflowed in his life uh, into the lives of those that he was writing to. It's very clear from Scripture that God intends us as his people to be his instruments of encouragement and this is done best face to face to be quite well-known words from from hebrews 24 to chapter 10 let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds spur one another on not giving up meeting together face to face 
as some are in the habit of doing. They never had a pandemic like we did. Lockdowns. Pastors will tell you that some people are far more comfortable being at home. Oh, pastor, you know, I'm, I'm attending church at home. <laughs> not the same. There were other reasons why these people were, were not meeting together because of the fear of persecution. But he says, encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. That's one Thessalonians. <laughs> That's a summary of my message. The time that we spend together as God's people after church, my friends, is an important part of our gathering. Don't just talk about load shed. Don't just talk about the weather. I'm not saying you can't, but don't just talk about that. Don't just talk about your sporting team and how they're doing or how they aren't doing. Don't just talk about government corruption. Ask them how they're doing. Yesterday I uh, met with some of my family, my siblings and one of my cousins was there. She recently lost her husband uh, through illness and um, my sister said to her, and she told me this afterwards, my sister said to her, how are you doing? And she says, uh, she's a believer. She says, uh, no one's, you know, you're the first person to ask me. And this, I think, six months after her husband passed. Well, you're the first person to ask me how I'm doing. We are to, my friends, look around us. We need to, to, to ask people, how are you doing? How are things going with you? How can I pray with you? How can I encourage you? Talk about the message. Talk about what God is sharing with you in His Word. Encourage one another. That's our calling. Let me make some brief comments by way of conclusion. You know, Jesus warned his disciples that they should expect what I call pushback from the world simply because of our identification with Jesus. Jesus says this in Luke 21, everyone will hate you because of me. Simply by virtue of the fact that you're a Christian. Done them no harm, but you identify yourself as a Christian. Everyone will hate you because of me. Consequently, in the New Testament, not only Paul, but also the writer to Hebrews, James, the Apostles, Peter and John, address this reality in their letters. I don't know if you realize that. A lot of the so-called general epistles on that, it's full of just encouraging believers in the midst of trials and hardships, because this is the normal Christian life. I think Peter puts it best when he says it this way in chapter 4 of his first letter. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Why are you surprised when you go through trials? Why are you surprised when you pass over for that promotion because you're a Christian? Why are you surprised when your neighbors are hostile? Again, this preacher who came on, on during the week, he said in an attempt to try and get to know some of the folk in the neighborhood, you know, it was uh, Halloween. So he and his wife got a, they got a table, they moved the table onto the street, and they put all the candies. You know what Halloween is when the kids go around door to door? You with me? You know what I'm talking about, man? Trick or treat. 
<laughs> of course, the parents go along and they get more than their fair share of the candy as well. And he says, he said this, he says, I watched, he said there was a group of, of, of parents and children walking down. And they went to the neighbors and they got, and they said they saw me and my wife sitting like outside the church. They literally crossed over the road, walked by them, crossed back onto the other side of the road and went to the neighbors next door. You know, it's a city we live in. That's the perception. And so God has a purpose in persecution to test, to test the genuineness of your faith. And we talked about that last week. Indeed, my friends, the enmity that believers experience from unbelievers is God's doing. I want to quote from Genesis 3.15. Listen to this language. This is God speaking. I, God, will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers word to say I am the one I am the one says God is going to put enmity between believer and unbeliever well you see that changes everything doesn't it this is God's doing and therefore God has a purpose in it and therefore my friends God will sustain us through it it's part of his purposes And so here Paul reminds him, this is the work of the triune God. It is Jesus who has saved you. It is the Holy Spirit who is sanctifying you. And it is God who will sustain you. That's the message. God will do it. He is faithful. He is faithful. And He will do it. And so my friends, again, if you're going through trials and hardships, that's the word to you. If God, if God could do it for the Thessalonians, He can do it for you. Let me just quote one verse here in chapter 3, verse 8. Paul here mentions here that Timothy brings back news to Paul, and I'm quoting, that they are standing firm in the Lord. These fledgling new believers going through a fiery trial, Paul says, God is faithful, he would do it. Timothy sends, Timothy, Tim, Timothy comes back and says, hey Paul, good news. They're standing firm. God is faithful, my friends. And he will do it. So put your trust in him. Your relationship with God, my friends, is all important, is most important. It is worth suffering for. Because the outcome, the glorious outcome is guaranteed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Again, I said nothing new. What I've sought to do, like Paul, is remind people of what they know. Because we confess, Lord, when trials come, we often forget these things. Forgive us for trying to navigate them in our own strength. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your glory. Thank you for your wonderful promises. Thank you for your great love, a love so great that you sent your son to die. Thank you, Lord, for the work of your spirit that sanctifies us, that gives us a love for you. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you've specially chosen us. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would make us steadfast, that we, like those saints, would stand firm 
in the Lord. And that we look forward to that glorious day and we will spend all eternity with you forever. In Jesus' name. Amen.